Welcome back, Patreon supporters, to the Pele Media bonus episode for this week. Uh, we are going to be covering the John Sayles first draft of Jurassic Park 4. I'm Kyle. I'm Brady. And uh, like I said, yeah, we're going to be going over this draft today for Jurassic Park 4, which was never produced in what eventually would become Jurassic World. So, Brady, let me ask you about this. When you walked out of the theater after seeing Jurassic Park 3, was the first thing in your mind, you know what, I need to go back to that island. I need some more Jurassic Park in my life. Uh, Isla Sorna, no. Uh, Isla Nublar was kind of always where my interests were. But uh, I think you mean to go back to that franchise, if you will. Um, Sure, yeah. It, to be honest with you, I remember my initial thoughts upon leaving that theater were I miss Stan Winston, excuse me, I miss um, the T-Rex, and I miss Michael Crichton. Mm-hmm. And Michael Crichton, you know, the T-Rex, obviously kind of an anecdote because it wasn't even barely in Jurassic Park 3, but uh, Michael Crichton's presence, his um, his ideas, the fact that what he had to say was important and meant something, and whereas... We're both, uh, you know, open about our... We have some fondness for Jurassic Park 3. We think it's a, a fine film for what it uh, what it wants to be. It's still not a film that is heavy with ideas and themes and philosophical issues, which I think make a Jurassic Park film a Jurassic Park film. It's not right. just dinosaurs. This John Sales draft has the dinosaurs, but it lacks everything that you... It lacks that connective tissue that the Jurassic Park films and the franchise need. And it's not in here, and it was barely in Jurassic Park 3. Um, and so, no, yeah, yeah, I, I had kind of said if this is where this these filmmakers and where this franchise are going to be going with this is away from heavy material, not heavy material, but smart material into just action thrillers, I'm really not interested. I yeah. kind of think well yeah. enough should be left alone and... Um, and that's it, man. I think that helicopter should have taken... Grant, Ellie, the kids, Malcolm and Hammond off into the sunset and probably never, never gone back. Yeah. So, and you know, it's funny because I think Scott was even the guy who brought this up where he feels that uh, the Lost World was kind of a retelling of uh, of uh, King Kong, that Steven Spielberg Mm -hmm. was trying to do that. You know, Jurassic Park is kind of a retelling of Frankenstein. And as we'll get into in a little bit further, I think that what they were going for with this, this Jurassic Park 4 idea was getting into a little bit of the island of Dr. Moreau. So, you know, there's definitely some thematic, ah. some inklings of, of thematic ideas with that. But but this this script, now I think we have to talk about this too. And this script we're going to be talking about is actually the first draft of the John Sayles yeah. script. And apparently this was not the final draft, which they were almost about to shoot, which we've heard goes to even some crazier places. But let's back up before we actually talk about the script and talk a little bit about what it was going into Jurassic Park 4, what the, the catalyst was to get Jurassic Park 4 made. Apparently, uh, during the production of... And I, I want to say this real quick. I'm taking most of the notes that I found here today from an article from uh, denofgeek.com. It was an article written by Rob Lane last year. And if you want to find more in-depth conversation about Jurassic Park 4 and what it could have been, definitely check out denofgeek.com. You can just Google this. It was written by Rob Lane. I think if you just Google Jurassic Park 4, it's one of the first three results on Google. And I highly recommend reading Rob's article because there's some really fascinating stuff in there about Jurassic Park 3, about film production. And you know he's, he's a really good writer. He's written several different articles. Uh, Articles and if you will want to look at the show notes today, I will link off to that article in the show notes. Uh, in, in the show notes, but to get back to it, during the production of Jurassic Park three, as usually happens, Steven Spielberg and Joe Johnson actually started tossing around ideas for Jurassic Park four on the set. And I think Joe Johnson said something to the effect of, "Boy, I can't wait to make that movie." 
sarcastically and was actually taken that Jurassic Park 4 was about to pick up production as soon as Jurassic Park 3 ended. So Jurassic Park 3 did not bomb at the box office. It did pretty well. Of course, it was kind of a sliding scale from Jurassic Park to The Lost World to Jurassic Park 3, but the film was profitable at the end of the day. And of course, in Hollywood, if it's profitable and if people recognize a property, they're going to want to try to exploit that as much as they can. So Jurassic Park 4 in some form was an inevitability. So uh, Johnson wanted to step away from the franchise for a little bit, but he did say that Steven Spielberg's ideas for Jurassic Park 4 would take the series to a whole new level. The entire mythology of Jurassic Park would be going to entirely new places. So uh, one of the early ideas that they had tossed around was that the Pteranodons at the end of Jurassic Park 3 would actually get off of the island. So that was a constant part of the idea for Jurassic Park 4, which it's kind of funny because when we talk about what Jurassic Park 4 was originally going to be, Brady, I think we're going to see a lot of uh, elements that were shared in both the Jurassic Park uh, cartoon that did not get made, and then also Uh some elements that were brought over into the Jurassic Park video game, the Telltale video game that we talked about earlier on the show. That's right. The primary MacGuffin of that whole idea for Jurassic Park 4 coming back in that. But uh, in, in in a 2002 interview with Starlog magazine, Steven Spielberg was quoted as saying, and I quote, We actually have a wonderful story that I think is the best story since the very first movie. In fact, I wish it was the third story instead of the fourth one. It came late, but it's actually the best story I've heard for a dinosaur movie since my, since the Michael Crichton book. And I'm not going to tell you anything about it. My lips are sealed. So that was kind of the only idea that we had going into it, that Steven Spielberg was very excited about it, that Joe Johnston uh, was also excited about the movie. And whatever this idea was that was cooking, it sounded like it was going to be something pretty great if those two guys can get behind it. So, uh, But in 2002, Steven Spielberg actually hired Kathleen Kennedy on as producer and William Monaghan, uh, who wrote The Departed. Uh, to write Jurassic Park 4, and both Sam Neill and Jeff Goldblum were told about the script concept and expressed interest in coming back. I believe that Sam Neill uh, wasn't signed to the movie, but it was kind of an inevitability at some point that he was going to be a part of Jurassic Park 4. So, uh, No one is really sure what the Monaghan draft was about, but Kathleen Kennedy did state that they were not going to go back to the jungle, that this movie was going to take place uh, off of the island or outside of a jungle setting. So there was a lot of speculation it was going to be about dinosaurs arriving in Costa Rica and then breeding out of control. And we can see a little bit of some of those ideas kind of reaching over into this uh, John Sayles script. So, But uh, Kira Knightley and Richard Attenborough had actually both been contacted about appearing in the Monahan version with Kira Knightley actually auditioning for the film. And I think it was kind of a given that uh, Richard Attenborough was going to be in the film. But William Monahan left the project to go work on Kingdom of Heaven and John Sayles was brought in. Now John Sayles has written a movie called Lone Star. Have you ever seen Lone Star, Brady? No, no I haven't. Lone Star is one of my favorite screenplays. It's a really um, complex and complicated movie about a town on the Mexico-Texas border and race relations in that town and crime. Uh, it's the story about, I believe it's Chris Cooper, plays the sheriff of the town, and his father, in a lot of flashbacks, is played by Matthew McConaughey. And Matthew McConaughey was a sheriff who, maybe he wasn't racist in the town, but he had to kind of back up some of the racial tensions in the town and keep people from killing each other, you know, uh, Caucasians in the town and then Mexicans who had crossed the border to live in the town and the script gets very very complicated from there and actually ends in a really fascinating place uh at the end of the whole thing but it's definitely if you haven't seen lone star uh, and you can get a hold of it i definitely recommend watching it it's a fantastic script Uh, i love it so very accomplished screenwriter who had actually worked with steven spielberg before on a project called night skies have you ever heard of night skies was Night Skies turned into a TV miniseries? Uh, no, it wasn't directly, but it was turned into a couple of other things. Maybe a movie, a little heard, uh, uh, maybe a little movie you probably heard of before called ET. Uh, and let me ah, tell you about the concept of this that. movie, and you tell me if 
you if this sounds familiar. Uh, it's a family that in the 1970s lives on a farm that starts seeing strange lights in the sky. And then some strange things start happening around their house. And then it turns out that some extraterrestrials are living in the barn outside of their house and are terrorizing the family at night. So this movie sounds a lot like E.T. It sounds like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah. It kind of sounds like Poltergeist. And it also kind of sounds like Signs. So this movie actually, Night Skies, was it, it kind of became all of those, but more directly became E.T. In fact, if you go and look at yeah. some of the... Uh, you can actually Google Night Skies, and it'll bring up some uh, some props that were made and some uh, some like animatronics or like earlier renderings of the aliens that look like kind of a proto ET. It's much more scary. It was a horror movie, and the family had to like fight the aliens and escape and, and get away from them. But uh, it's one huh. of those that I really wish was realized because there's the, the screenplay. Because it sounds more like signs like anything else, but it sounds like a pretty fascinating screenplay. But um, have you ever heard of ET two? No. Okay, so E.T. 2, I think there's actually a script out there you can read for it, but there was actually a sequel in produ- pre-production for E.T. at one point, because when Steven Spielberg had made the movie E.T., uh, it was a part of the option that he would have to be the guy who made E.T. 2 if it ever got made. But he made E.T. and said, this doesn't, you know, there's there's no sequel that you can make to this that would top E.T., the extraterrestrial. It's just, it's sacred ground that we should never come back for a sequel. But Universal flexed their muscles and were like, no, this movie made, it's the highest grossing film of all time right now. We want you to make a sequel to E.T. So he said, okay, fine. I'm the guy that has to write the script, so I'll go ahead and write it. And the script is a uh, lurid horror movie about uh, alien bounty hunters coming down and track it, t- trying to track down E.T. It completely throws off all of the kind of like peaceful, spiritual side of the E.T. story in place for this just disgusting horror movie about these aliens coming back and like trying to kill E.T. and trying to kill Elliot and his family and stuff like that. So it's basically like a poison pill option that Steven Spielberg inserted into his contract so that he couldn't get you know pushed around by Universal to make a film that he didn't want to make. So... But backing up to Jurassic Park for a minute, uh, John Sales was brought in to rework the, I guess, the ideas of the William Monaghan script, and Alex Proyas, uh, who directed Dark City, was brought in to direct the movie. Uh, but at some point, he backed out on the project and went on to make iRobot instead, and was actually quoted as saying he's completely uninterested in working on the script that they had at the time. So that's kind of the first inkling of the idea that maybe the script was not as great as it was initially you know uh, like kind of like built up by Kathleen Kennedy and Steven Spielberg and everybody that had seen the version of it so uh, I don't know if he was looking at the script that we're going to be talking about today or not but uh, I I would have to maybe agree with him on that but uh, the version of the script we're going to be talking about today is one that was actually leaked Uh, it was intercepted when Steven Spielberg's email account got hacked and somebody was able to find the pdf of the script the John Sales script and uh, and uh, print it out and then make a copy of it. And then it got out there and John Sales did confirm that this was the first draft of the script. And I believe he is the only writer credited on it. So we don't know if there, anybody else was brought in to rework the script or maybe there was like how many other drafts there were to it. But one of the things that doesn't show up in this script is the idea of human-raptor hybrids, which is something that when Jurassic Park, when the script leaked, somehow a lot of these images leaked as well. So a lot of people were speculating that there was going to be velociraptor people in the movie. And I want to say at one point, um, who is the paleontologist that worked very closely with Jurassic Park and the Lost World? Uh, Jack yes, Horner. Jack Horner actually talked about being contracted for it too, and said that if you liked velociraptors, and you were in store for a lot of, uh, of more velociraptors in Jurassic Park Four. But there was an image that leaked that I think ran on Ain't It Cool News, and it was like a human like screaming, but it was like half velociraptor. Do you remember when that came? Yeah, public? you can still. Yeah, you you can still find that. 
around the internet. And there was also another image of a half-human, half-raptor-looking dude, and one of his arms has been chopped off and replaced by, like, a laser gun or something like that. Yeah. Have you seen that image? Uh-huh. Yep. It's kind of reminiscent of the conceptual drawing for a uh, a Nazi that was going to be in Raiders of the Lost Ark who was, like, half-robot or uh, some, yeah. half-cyborg or something, and it, his, his arm was like a machine gun. Yeah, it was... I don't know. It was a lot like yeah. that. You know, nah. these, these Steven Spielberg ideas never die. If he doesn't produce one in a movie, he does kind of like put it in his little, like, I guess, mental filing cabinet. And then later when he's talking to a screenwriter about it, what, yeah. what he wants, it's probably something that comes up and gets worked into a script at some point. But yeah, so right. let's go ahead and talk about the script itself. Uh, did you did you get a chance? You, you, you read like an overview of the script, right? Uh, I read the script and okay, the overview. Yeah. I found the overview to be pretty, pretty informative. You know, more informative than I thought it was. Yeah, and be. I think it actually does a better job of covering the script than the script does itself, because this is <laughs> this definitely comes across as a first gra- a first draft. And I don't want to mean that to kind of like denigrate the script. It's when you're writing a screenplay, you do multiple drafts of something. You know, you sometimes you even push out a first copy of a screenplay just to get your page count in, and then you start reworking the structure of it from there. So I think it was George, right? Which and you. You, you can't really hold something like that against sure. a script, the first draft of a script, because it's there to give you your skeleton, your blueprints, if you will, and then go back and overlay it with the, you know. Right, yeah. So anyway, you, you, you might take, a, you know, 100 pages of something and then say, like, okay, this first half works, but the second half needs some work, and I'm going to cut some stuff down and cut some stuff back, and then all of a sudden you start getting a better screenplay. And these things take, like, six months to a year to really get right when you're talking about a really good screenplay. So, you know, we, we when we're talking about this movie, we, we have some qualms with it, I think. I think we, we do want to say that we understand that this is not the finished draft of the movie, but there's enough in here to kind of see where they were going and figure that it was actually, it would have been very troubling if this is what we ended up with. So, But, you know, it starts off with a bang. There's a big action sequence here at the very beginning, and like I said earlier, the Pteranodons had gotten off of the island and had actually made their way into the mainland United States of America. And I'm starting to see initially here some themes I think that John Sayles was trying to write here. I think this is about uh, the backlash of the war on terror, and I also think it is about uh, the coming home of uh, climate change, that when it actually starts affecting Americans, then we start to take notice on things, and then we react sometimes disproportionately to what we find. So, Pteranodons show up at a Little League baseball game at the very beginning of this thing and start uh, offing people or trying to bite people, and then actually, I think, like, on page uh, six or something, a dog gets eaten by a Pteranodon. So, at that point, I'm completely out of the movie. Like, I have have something against it at that point. But the idea here is that the Pteranodons have bred, that their breeding isn't stopping, and that they're getting off of the island, and something has to be done about it. They've made their way up through uh, South America. In fact, there's several statements in the in the screenplay that this is something that had been a regular occurrence in Costa Rica and Mexico, and then it had finally made itself up to, I don't know if this is like Texas or Louisiana or Arizona or Florida or something like that, but these pteranodons had finally made it up to the United States, and now something has to be done about it. So um, the UN actually is the group that gets together and says something has to be done about these dinosaurs. So that was you know kind of a cool idea that they uh, you know, are bringing the United Nations in on it. They could, in fact, be a global issue at some point, and they have to take uh, take a yes. take a, uh, a note of it right now and get on it. So that's kind of what like that. That was an element in the animated series breakdown that I thought was really right. cool. Uh, now, granted, it wasn't like a global thing, but they were moving into South right. America, and you had to get the you know a political uh, elements yeah. involved, which I thought was very cool. 
know, yeah, yeah, no, that was very cool. That was kind of the general premise of the entire cartoon was them trying to stop the breeding of dinosaurs in South America. And then didn't it end with them like constructing a giant wall on the United States, Mexico border. And then finally the dinosaur, I think that's what it was, right? Or like somewhere in Mexico and the dinosaurs busted through the wall. I think that was the end of the first season. So, but, um, yeah, so, and then we kind of uh, start to see that, you know, the, the United Nations, and in fact, uh, John Hammond himself wants to kind of do something about these dinosaurs, who are introduced to our protagonist here, Nick, who is an ex-military guy who's now a private military contractor and is working uh, with John Hammond to try to stop the dinosaurs from, I guess, you know, overbreeding and overrunning the world. And there's kind of a cool scene where he meets another one of his old military buddies at Hammond's compound, which I think is like a zoo at this point. It's like, a you know, one of his uh, wildlife refuges. Kind of a simple yeah. aviary. And he meets yeah. a guy who has, like, a robot arm. So, you know, we kind of get that again. But th- this it starts to kind of get into these themes of, like, genetic or, like, uh, uh, bionic modification to people. This guy has, like, no, excuse me, it's a leg. It's not an arm. He has, like, a robot leg. It's just legs. Yeah, yeah. so we're kind of getting to the idea here that, uh, that this is taking place in a future where it's pretty common that people will have, like, you know, robot attachments to them, you know, to overcome disabilities and stuff like that, which is kind of a cool idea. But we start to get into that theme that there's going to be a lot more genetic uh, and and then robotic manipulation in this story. So kind of a cool idea to bring also the post-traumatic stress disorder aspect in this whole thing. They do talk about a little bit of their PTSD when they're talking with each other. So, but uh, you know, that's, that's another cool theme that's getting brought in here. So, you know, of course I'm sure that those probably would have been narrowed down to maybe we we would have been sticking with one theme throughout the movie, but it is cool to see that John sales is trying to dig for something a little bit deeper here. So, but uh, John Hammond is introduced in a pretty cool way in this movie. He talks about how like he is the most sued man ever in the world because of what happened with Jurassic Park. Yeah, he's in the uh, Guinness Book. Yeah, he of tells World him to Records. go look it up. He's like, I think he says something like they teach a class on on me at in colleges because I've been sued so many times. But I did like sense, that yeah. they were bringing not only John Hammond back for this, but his role in the whole thing too, because he tells Nick, Nick, I need for you. Okay, so he wants to stop the dinosaurs from getting out of control, and his method of doing so is by introducing uh, a strain of female dinosaurs into the population that are sterile. So that all when it comes dinosaur mating time, the dinosaurs will start breeding themselves out by, you know, uh, breeding with each other and not producing offspring. And then after a few generations, I thought that was I thought that was kind of interesting, like, you know. The, the way you fight fire with fire almost. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, it, I thought that was kind of an interesting idea. It's definitely better than, uh, I th- you know, there's Grindle, who is the other company that we're introduced to here, uh, apparently has been hunting down and killing dinosaurs on Isla Nublar. They are the company that bought Isla Nublar after the Jurassic Park incident and had been eliminating dinosaurs uh, with force. And they say that they've wiped out the entire dinosaur population on the island. Well, John Hammond's way is a little bit more humane. It's a humane extinction, I guess, of a way of getting rid of dinosaurs. But it's also one that probably would have been pretty effective. If you want to go out there and track down all the dinosaurs and make them extinct by killing them, that's going to be a little bit more harder to to do than I think that they would have given themselves credit for. Have you heard, by the way, that like people have been spotting um, Tasmanian tigers in the wild, reportedly? No. So the Tasmanian tiger what? is is really? is a is an animal that kind of looks like almost like a zebra dog. It's really weird. It's called the Tasmanian tiger, but it looks like half dog, half zebra. It's really weird. But it has it went extinct like a hundred years ago from like I think um, overdevelopment and stuff like that. It got driven in you know in, into extinction. But people have said that in the forests of Tasmania uh, that they're actually seeing these things again, which is pretty crazy. So I don't know if that's true or not, but I've seen I've read some stories about that. There have been sightings of them. So hopefully that's the case. Hopefully there's a small strain of them that's still alive that maybe we can. 
take and, you know, take a couple of them and put them in a zoo and then try to control the population or get them back in the population again. That'd be very cool. So, um, but anyway, very. so John Hammond says, well, the way we, you know, he's like, we don't have any DNA anymore to try to breed these dinosaurs, but there is one source still left in the world and they're in Nidri's Barbasol can. So we get the main MacGuffin of the plot there at that point. Uh, he's hiring Nick. Hate okay. It. So tell me about your problems with that. Cause I have some problems as well. <laughs> okay. First off, the idea of the Barbasol can is um, it represents the fact that like crime doesn't pay. It represents the fact that, you know, the, the plan failed and it's kind of hard to put into words. Imagine that I have a problem articulating something. Um, just leave it alone, man. It's, it's there to represent the fact that nothing is going to work out for anybody here. Murphy's law has taken over and nobody's going to win. And when you see that thing being covered up by the mud, it means that the, that's sort of the ending of that idea. It's almost like the curtain down on that idea. And so I, somehow I thought they made it work in the game uh, that we reviewed for whatever reason it worked for me there. But I think to go back to that is almost like kind of a cop out. And Spielberg did say in an interview that he left the Barbasol can there for use in a sequel if he ever wanted to come back. Right. And I just think it's just, it's just kind of cheap. So what I have you? a couple of problems with it. I think it's cheap as well. It's like every kid you ever talked to in a playground in the 90s who said, like, you know, they could make a Terminator 3 because Arnold's arm is still stuck in that machine in the foundry at the very end of the movie. You know, it's like, yeah, no, no shit, man. I know that that's there and it's definitely a MacGuffin <laughs> they could use again. But here's my problems. Okay, number one, that thing only has coolant for like, uh, what, like six or seven hours or something like that? Hours. Yeah, so they wouldn't be any good to begin yeah. with. Secondly, why would you want to go up to the damn can when there's a whole room full of those freaking samples over there in the main compound? You know, like they talk, I mean, th- there had to have been some sort of reclamation uh, project that went in and got all the stuff that was actually in coolers that would have been better than D- Nidri's Barbasol can. Like it's ignoring the fact that there's a bigger cache of this stuff over to the right just by a few miles, you know? So, but I also, I think your, your problem with it probably is more of a, a better argument because once that stuff get once it gets covered up with mud, it is like the folly of Nidri. It's the whole greed thing kind of like, it's a symbol for all of that. And it's, you know, it's, I yeah. think it's much better, better left in that direction, but I'm glad that they didn't use it in Jurassic world. You know, in Jurassic world, there was, you know, there was, there were other sites uh, clearly with this, uh, with this, uh, this, this DNA stored somewhere in a cooler that could get gotten to, you know, this stuff is backed up on computers. Like yeah. it's not, it's not, a problem to give the dinosaur DNA that's not an issue you know so that that might have been something that was pulled out of the movie but you know that's Nick's primary driving factor here Hammond wants him to go back to the island and to find Nidri's canister and then from there they can uh, create a new breed of dinosaurs introduce them into the general population of dinosaurs and they'll breed themselves out of existence so that's just what we're going with in this so Nick takes off to Isla Nublar and I kind of think that this is probably the best portion of the movie as far as action and kind of inspiration goes he's like an ex-military guy an ex-seal and they had this entire Mission Impossible type sequence where he's dropped off by boat, swims to the shore, takes out his military equipment, and then he sets off to find the Barbasol can. My problem with that is that I think that should have been the whole movie. You know, uh, it's his trek yeah. back through the broken down island that has security forces that are owned by Grendel there, uh, you know, kind of like a PMC that is occupied this island. Um, 
I thought it would have been really cool for him kind of like trying in a spy movie type thing, you know, trying to get there. He finds out very quickly that there are still a lot of dinosaurs on this island, that Grindel has lied about the fact that they've been killing these things. And we'll get into why that is in a few minutes. But uh, his trip through there to find Nidri's uh, Jeep is is a, is is a pretty cool thing. You know, he's like going through all these like ruins and stuff like that. But it's just like maybe like two pages before, before he finally finds the Jeep and finds the Barbasol can and then is instantly attacked or you know has a bunch of these military guys surround him you know and they're speaking spanish and telling him to, you know they just want the barbasol can themselves which is weird that they probably have a lot of time to go after yeah. that but anyway so they kind of surround him in a circle and then they are attacked by velociraptors and the whole thing goes south really quick you find out really quickly there are a lot of dinosaurs left on this island and they just start taking out this military contractor crew and nick is able to escape with the barbasol can and i think he goes into like the sewers of jurassic park and actually works his way back towards his pickup point on the beach and there's some really cool action sequences there that's like 20 pages of like it would have been a big chunk of the middle of the movie that was more like a chase scene with him and i did think that one of the first scenes one of the first action scenes is like him trying to hide on the bunk bed while the raptor's sort of like stalking him through the room and then has to fall off and goes through the floor you know i don't know but Keep, keep going. But keep going. I, I think all that stuff would have been cool to see on screen. I think it's stuff that we haven't seen, and it's more like the the kids in the kitchen with the Velociraptors than anything else. You yes. know, it's like his guns aren't really going to do him a whole lot of good against the Velociraptors, so his best thing to do is to hide and try to outsmart the Raptors. And I thought that this whole portion of the movie would have been really cool had we seen that for like two hours. Now, again, it's a little bit more like Jurassic Park 3 with, you know, it's not really doing a whole lot of, you know, it doesn't have a lot of themes or anything like that. But one guy trying to sneak around, survive and get off of the island, I think, is something that could make for a compelling film. But maybe they try to like throw some themes in there. I thought it might be cool if he got to the island and maybe there were people living on it, you know, like villagers that had moved to the island and were like living in some of the compounds and stuff like that. And maybe he would have to kind of like work with them and figure out how they've survived. But anyway, so to get back to what's to what actually happened and not in my fantasy booking, uh, he gets to the beach and his <laughs> ride is there. He has signaled for a guy in a plane to come pick him up. And while he's trying to get off the island, he's being chased by a raptor that I think they called Digger the whole time. This raptor had the name of Digger in the script, but I think that's just because of his right. claws look like mole claws or something like that, which I guess they're just referring, sales are referring to the raptor's forearm. So uh, Digger uh, is chasing him and he's trying to get to his uh, guy on the plane while being chased. What does this sound like? It's, it sounds like Indy and Jacques Lindsay at the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark. The whole thing is him trying to get there on the plane and get out of there. Damn. So uh, this guy in the plane tries to start up his plane, and as he's trying to fly away, uh, what is it? Uh, I can't. I think a chronosaur is the name of it. Like a giant water dinosaur comes out and bites his plane in half, which I'm kind of yeah. curious how that thing got off the island, you know, or like is... And why it wouldn't have like swam further yeah. away. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Or unless they, unless they, the, yeah, because it's off the beach. I mean, if it was going to be like, say, in Indiana Jones, where it's on a river, sort of, you know, in, you know, towards the middle of the island or something, where that thing could have been yeah. cut off uh, from, like, unable to leave the. The which, which I think now will. wasn't that a part of the Jurassic Park cartoon? They were going to have like a mosasaur in the middle of the island or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and then of yeah. course that ended up in uh, Jurassic World. But uh, it was, you know, it, it kind of a weird sequence. But anyway, the, the main point is that. Nick gets picked up by a helicopter, a gunship, I think they even call it, and it is these private military contractor guys again, and he's basically just looking for a way to live and get off of the island. They pull him up into the thing and punch him and knock him out, and then eventually, I think they make their way back to the mainland. He comes to, is able to grab the Barbasol can and jumps out of the helicopter and then tries to starts making his way through uh, Costa Rica. So again, another action sequence. This, this is kind of like, it comes very close to this whole scene of him trying to get away from the Raptors on the island, but now it's him being pursued 
pursued by military guys while carrying this barbasol can. Uh, he finds a random yeah. store and sticks the barbasol can inside of a, the bottom of a Coke machine, like a, a Coke machine in Mexico somewhere, or in South America, excuse me. So it's safe, but now he's running away from them. They don't know where this Barbasol can is. So this is where the story takes a hard left turn. And I feel like this is where John sales may finished his entire, like what, what his ideas were for the draft. And, you know, at this point it's still a really cool kind of like spy movie type thing with dinosaurs in it. And then I feel like he got up and walked away and he got an email from Steven Spielberg saying like, this is what I want the movie to be. And then tried to like shove that into the last like 70 pages of it or something like that. Because yeah, it gets just off the wall bizarre yeah. it's it's almost like he walked out of the room and a two-year-old stole his <laughs> laptop and started writing the rest of it it doesn't just i mean biz- baron von drax yes. like it, be, it becomes a marvel movie what? it becomes uninspired at this point i feel yeah. and it, it it also it just kind of and of course we have to say again this is a first draft of the movie but it kind of repeats itself with some sequences and and it feels like it covers the same territory more than once in this and i felt like the the this is this is the the section of the movie that would have been reworked more. This first half I think feels like the same movie. It feels like an exciting adventure movie. The second half is just it turns into a Marvel movie at some point. But so yeah. Brady, I, I I want you to try to articulate for for our audience out there like how hard of a left turn this thing makes after he gets after Nick gets knocked out again. Okay. So it's like you were saying we're on we're in the you know South America we're in the jungle. It's kind of a spy type thing with dinosaurs. A little bit interesting. He gets knocked out. He wakes up in the snowy Swiss Alps in a castle. And if the idea was to like really throw us off and say, okay, now we're somewhere other than the island and the jungle of the Jurassic Park that you know, it's like, yeah, but it's stupid. (laughs) It might have worked if I woke up and I was in like, I don't know, man, somewhere tangible, like a city or something. I, I don't know. Somewhere not as... Uh, completely opposite end of the right. spectrum, you know, in terms of geography and uh, or just environment overall. It feels um, like a conscious effort to make it, really, it as far from the jungle as they can, and that yes. is and it, it's so. distracting more than anything else, you know. Yes, uh, it feels like a James it Bond does, movie. Yes, um, and not in a. I'm talking like a Roger <laughs> Moore. In fact, the the villain's name is Drax, which was one of the villains, and I think it was like Moon I think Ranger. so, yeah, and. Uh, and just that name, Baron Von Drax, and he's got a, he's a mad scientist with his lab and everything. Like you said, it's kind of like Island of Dr. Moreau meets a Roger Moore James Bond movie. That's not a good combination. Now, I actually, I say some stuff on here that I'm pretty sure people are like, how in the hell can this guy be fond of this movie? I actually don't think the Island of Dr. Moreau with Marlon Brando is that bad yeah. of a movie. Uh, so it seems like something like that with a, a touch of Jurassic Park might actually work, but... They do not go in that direction. They go more in the direction of the Roger Moore, James Bond type. Thing oh, yes. They hard left turn into that. It, you know, I agree. It feels a lot like a James Bond movie, especially in the way that like in a lot of James Bond movies, James Bond gets caught by a villain. And instead of them killing him, they just like make him a guest, you know, like in Dr. No, where he gets like showered yeah. down at the very beginning and him and uh, Honey Rider are like all of a sudden guests of Dr. No. And it's exactly like that. Like they go down to a room where uh, I don't know if it's, was it Von Drax or was it somebody else who was training with like a spear or something like that? I think Um, it was one of, 
That I, I think I it was don't. one of Von Drax's like lieutenants because I don't think Von Drax comes in until a little bit later, and he's even more over the top cheesy than this other villain. So we have like multiple Bond villains in this thing, like mad scientists and stuff. But he goes down and he's sitting with this guy who's training with some sort of like a half axe type thing, half spear that the Swiss guard who guard the Pope use. And uh, this guy's like telling him the philosophy about the weapon and stuff like that. And it's like it's it's exactly like a bad James Bond movie. You know, he's sitting here like at this table and he's like, yeah. and, and this and this. I guess is one of my primary problems with the last half of the script. Uh, Nick should have been killed. Like there's no way that he's so important that they have to keep him alive for all this, except for the fact that number one, he knows where the Barbasol can is. And number two, they now want him to be the military trainer of an army of dinosaurs. So what does that kind of sound like? Yes, exactly. Grady out of of Uh, lost. That's, I mean, that's all. Yeah. Owen Grady out of lost world. And you can really tell how, the idea that so many uh, elements were kind of forced into Colin Trevorrow's right. hands. Um, we want this from another draft. We want this. We want this idea. We want this character. And I think he took a lot of that crap and made it yeah, work. Yeah, he did. Uh, and I want to, yeah, it's so, so you get the... Okay, here's the thing. A lot of action movies will have your leading man, and he's kind of a brute. This Nick Harris character fits that mold. Colin Trevorrow said he's going to have those elements, but he's going to be a smart person. He's going to have an under, like a very deep understanding of all of yeah. this stuff. And Owen Grady possesses all of that. So I, you know, I got to give it to Colin and uh, Derek Connolly, his writing partner, for making their hero smarter than your average hero, action yeah. hero. Um, so they they really did come in and take a lot of these elements, like. Okay, someone who has an idea to use these, you know, dinosaurs for militaristic purposes. And then they gave us Vic Hoskins, the uh, Vincent D'Onofrio character. So they kind of made that work. They really took a lot of a lot of the things that were just so bizarre and, I don't know, just kind of remold them into something that worked. So in light of that, I'm not that fond of Jurassic World, but in light of all that, I've got to give it to to the movie for, you know... Doing something that in the hands of just about anybody else who would say, okay, yes, Mr. Producer, we would have had this. We would have had this yeah. movie, Jurassic Park 4 by John And you know, it, John you Sills, again, I want to state, the guy is a fantastic screenwriter. So I kind of think with this version oh, yeah. of the screenplay, he is just dealing with a bunch of notes written down on like cocktail napkins from Steven Spielberg and trying to make it work. And you know what? Maybe after five drafts, this movie would have been something else. It, w- it would have been something cool. But what happens from here on out is really, I think, some of the most bland stuff that they could have done in Jurassic Park, period, because it goes into a comic book movie type territory or James Bond movie type territory. And so what we're talking about here in this island of of, uh, Dr. Moreau illusion we've been making is that this guy, Baron Von Drax, has been training an army of velociraptors uh, that have been cybernetically enhanced, I guess would be a good way to put it. And, you know, not just velociraptors. I believe there are other, uh, they're not actually velociraptors, I guess you should say that they, they are the Deinonychus, right? They introduced Deinonychus as the new velociraptor and it's eight feet tall. It's more like an ultra raptor. Uh, there's a Utah raptor. I think Utah raptor. Um, and they have uh, devices that are attached to their head that will give them chemical reactions uh, that they can manipulate these guys in the field. So if they want them to kind of stand down, they can depress them 
by using an injection in their brain of chemicals to make them do that. If they want to reward them, they'll release serotonin into their brain, which will make them happier. So it's kind of like they can manipulate the behavior of the, the uh, Deinonychus. And then also there's an Ankylosaurus, which is actually the best character in the entire screenplay. And he's downstairs just thrashing around inside of his pen. And then later on in the movie, he gets a, a great hero moment when they go on one of these like wet works missions. The thing is over. There's dead bodies everywhere. And it has found like a palm tree in the, I guess, uh, the hideout of the, of the drug dealer bad guys. I'm not joking when I say that. We'll get into that in a minute. And he's sitting there just snacking on all the plants. And there's like dead bodies around him everywhere. So, you know, the, the one little bit of personality in the movies by the Ankylosaurus. So anyway, uh, they pitch the idea to Nick. Why don't you help us train these in military operations? And then we will get that Barbasol can from you. And then you will be paid handsomely and let go. So that's really the only reason that Nick has to stick around. And it, it's just like in James Bond movies where the bad guy could have just like shot James Bond in the head after he got him. And then all his problems would be over and he could take over the world. Baron Von Drax decides to keep Nick around. And of course it doesn't really work out in his favor. So after this, we get like long, like almost like 30 pages of exposition about how they're like injecting the dinosaurs with serotonin and stuff to manipulate their behavior. Uh, and we find out that they are going to run an operation with these dinosaurs to help a kidnap uh, someone who's been kidnapped in South America. So this entire thing is leading up to these velociraptors being dropped off and working more like the Marines out of uh, aliens than anything else. So we get the scene where they go into, I think it's like an olive oil factory where they have these all these canisters of olive oil, and there's this little girl surrounded by guys with uh, with machine guns. And before this, we've seen them run uh, tests with the Velociraptors. Well, they'll have them, or the, excuse me, the Deinonychus. Well, they'll run into a room and attack these like mannequins with holding machine guns, and then try to save the little girl. And it doesn't really go right a few times until they get the current, I guess, mixture of serotonin right to really make them do what they want to do, where they're able to take out all the machine gun guys and then only knock over the little girl in the chair. And then one of the Deinonychus names, Spartacus, actually picks her up and sets her up straight. So they've kind of learned their lesson at that point. And it's funny because all of the Deinonychus have names like of like Greek and Roman. They're like Spartacus yes. and like uh, Casper and stuff like Right. Another another thing that would carry over into Jurassic World is Owen having named That's right. Uh, his yeah, raptors. Yeah. So we, we definitely have that. So they finally go and to these uh, kidnappers and the operation runs smoothly. They are, they're able to take everybody out. I think make, maybe Spartacus gets killed in that whole thing. I wasn't a hundred percent sure on that if he had died or not. So they get ready for their big hit after this. Now here's my problem with the structure of this so far. They basically do the the climax of this movie is done twice. It's done with these kidnappers and then it's done again with drug dealers like in Nicaragua or something like that. They're aiding another drug cartel to try to take out their their primary um, uh, uh, enemy in the drug trade. And number one, we've got bad guys fighting bad guys, helping bad guys fighting bad guys. And Nick is the only one that's even close to kind of a character in this that you're supposed to care for. And up until this point in this movie, he hasn't really done anything heroic. You know, maybe in another draft, he would have become more of a hero. But in this one, he's just kind of a hired gun. And there's nobody to really root for in all this. If everybody was killed at this point, I don't think I would have cared at all. But they decide to go for this uh, Scarface at the very end of Scarface, you know, where all of his uh, opponents come in and just like blow him away while he's like at the giant mountain of cocaine and the machine gun. It kind of becomes like that. Like the the dinosaurs go in and they start killing all these like drug dealers and they're getting shot and kind of going crazy. The ankylosaurus comes in and starts bashing everybody. And I think that the, the dinosaurs even kill the main drug dealer as he's sitting in a hot tub and they cut to it later. And the hot tub is just filled with blood and you see his body floating there as the hot 
hot tub is still like churning all the water. So some really, some really. Now, now I want you to think of that and then go and then immediately think of John Hammond talking about the flea circus and try and figure out where in the hell, what happened? How did it go from that to this? I think the, you know, just so that. Just, I think the way that it go got ahead. to that is that it got in the hands of too many people who have been in L.A. for too long, you know, and just kind of like this is kind of, you know, the, the drug dealer thing was kind of like the go to thing, like in the early 90s, late 80s for like we need a bad guy instantly. Well, who, who's bad? Well, yeah, drug dealers. Sure. Like License yeah. to Kill. The James Bond movie was the one where he yeah. quits the you know MI6 and then goes off to try to kill uh, the, the and, and a, a drug dealer who killed one of his spy buddies. And it is, it is, it's the most uninspired thing you can do. It's like, it's the easiest bad guy to go to at that time. It's like heroin dealers. So yeah, you know, but it's funny cause yeah. I think this was written like in the early two thousands. So it's kind of a holdover from like the nineties and in a lot of ways it feels like that, it, you know, Steven Spielberg has always said that he wanted to do a James Bond movie. And I think that's kind of how we got the American James Bond in Indiana Jones. And it feels like he went back to the well of that James Bond fetish for this one. And, uh, I'd like to see a Steven Spielberg James Bond movie, but it does feel again like we're taking stuff from the James Bond franchise and just dropping dinosaurs in it. So that that could be done. It just is not done well in this initial idea that John Sales wrote about. You know exactly. Jurassic Park is not a canvas for you to just take ideas and slap it, you know, and then drop dinosaurs onto it and all of this, and just say, okay, we'll call this Jurassic Park Five. We'll call this Jurassic Park Six. Because Jurassic Park has just enough in there for me to drop this other idea that I have into it and make a movie right. about that and still have the yeah. name recognition. Uh, that's almost offensive. Yeah, I think know? it definitely it's, would have you know, watered it's, it's down like the a, franchise even more had had this come out. This is it, Like you're saying, like dropping the dinosaurs into different movie ideas and putting the Jurassic Park label on it. You know what? You can find yeah. a way to put dinosaurs in a spy movie if you really wanted to. Like, I'm not, you know, if, if, you, if, it's, if it's a decent enough five-minute exposition at the beginning of the movie of why dinosaurs exist in this world, sure, I'll go along with it. Fine, you know? I watch a lot of crap. I'd watch that. <laughs> yeah. But um, so eventually <laughs> this uh, this almost like a wet works. It seems like a really violent scene here at the very end uh, goes awry. They're trying to get out of the place. B- Baron Von Drax and all the bad guys are there as well. And the dinosaurs eventually just end up turning on them. And I wasn't maybe I was kind of checked out by this point in the whole screenplay, but I wasn't sure why the dinosaurs turned on them at this point. But they do. Um, I think it might've been like maybe the, the regulations of like serotonin and stuff. They kind of started getting used to it and they finally like turned on their masters. And there's a, a chase at the end of the movie where the, the Dinonychus, excuse me, are chasing down all the bad guys, including Nick. And, you know, there's like a scene where I think the Baron Von Drax, maybe it is one of the Dinonychus actually like runs at a car where he's driving, jump kicks it, sticks its foot through the windshield and then pins him to the seat with its giant claw. And these claws in this are described like scimitars. Like, it's much bigger than a velociraptor. It could definitely, like, slice your head off very easily. So, uh, And then I think that one of the other guys tries to attack one of the velociraptors. Excuse me, I did it again. The Dinonychus with his... um uh, axe spear that he was talking about earlier in it, but because these Dinonychus are actually clad yeah. in body armor, uh, it, it just bounces off of it, and then it kills him and runs off into the jungle, and the movie ends, or the script ends very abruptly. It ends just with like Nick, and then some female protagonist who had no personality at all, and scientist earlier in the movie, just like sitting there on the side of the road after the in South America running away from a failed, or excuse me, a very successful uh, drug, wet works on drug dealers, and now they're surrounded by dinosaurs that have run off into the forest. So it just kind of like, it's just continuously like kind of uninspired. But again, like we said, 
This was the first draft of the movie. It could have gotten a lot better, but yeah, correct. Yeah. Correct. So correct, um, I did correct. notice though that there was a Mercedes mentioned on page 114. So that's one other thing I think that made itself over into the uh-huh. Jurassic world final version. So, you know, I don't, I don't know if there, I was, I was trying to like catch all of the things that did carry over into yeah. Jurassic world uh, as I was reading it. And I don't know if you, you might've mentioned this earlier, but um, the headpieces that the animals are wearing, the dinosaurs are wearing in it. That's just a little element that, you know, whenever they had uh, Hoskins put the cameras on the side yeah. of their head in Jurassic World, that was another little element, just another little yeah, visual that, that carried over. So there's some big things and some, yeah, some little tiny things and everything. So it's it was fun trying to, you know, pinpoint what yeah. came over and what didn't. It, it, so. it was it was fun to do that. And I think that, honestly, I you know, I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of Jurassic World, uh, but I do think it is definitely a better movie than this would have been. And actually takes the franchise into a place that they can do more interesting stuff with it. This, I don't know where the story goes after this one, if it just happened, you know. But Jurassic World will have Jurassic World 2 coming out soon. And from the sound of it, it sounds like they're trying to, you know, right the ship in a lot of ways with that one. But this one, I don't think there would have been any recovery from had this movie come out, you know. It just... Uh, it really, yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's a disappointment. It's a very interesting read, but it does kind of feel like this, the first half of the movie was really kind of an inspired, you know, like train of thought that he was going through. And the second half was just like, how am I going to fit all of this into, uh, a, you know, a, ni- a late seventies, James Bond film. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it, yeah. It takes a hard yeah, left. Yeah. <laughs> agree. It is very cool that it's out there though and available. It's not yeah. one of those things where it's like, oh well, it didn't get produced, so we have to hide it forever. You know, it's it's there, and if some people, you know, listeners want to, I like read reading it, it's these things after the fact and kind of thinking uh, about you know what it could have been. And for any negativity that we've had towards a screenplay, I do want to back up and say again, like this has no bearing on John Sales as a screenwriter. I John Sales, like seriously, Lone Star, go watch it. It's an amazing film. Uh, the guy is full of a lot of talent, and I do think that this was just kind of like early notes on something. So it. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's man, it's something else, and we'll definitely have linked in the show note here where you can find the PDF to this because it is out there, and you know you can read it and maybe learn some screenwriting tips from it. <laughs> so, but it's uh, it's it's an interesting piece of the Jurassic yeah. Park history and something that I'm I'm glad did not get to see the light of day, uh, even though that I I think I'm being a little bit too harsh on it, you know, because it's just part of the business that sometimes you, you you write a version of a screenplay and then it turns into something else entirely. We know that because we went back. And actually looked at the original draft by Michael Crichton of Jurassic Park. And it, of course, did not live up to what the final version of Jurassic Park was. So, you know, these things can definitely change two or three times over the production of a film. But, yeah, very interesting piece of history as far as it goes. That's right. All right, folks. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody have a great weekend. I'm Kyle. I'm Brady. And until next time, mahalo. This has been a Pele Media Patreon episode. Thank you so much for being a Patreon supporter and keeping the show going. If you enjoy our bonus episodes, be sure to tell your friends to check us out at patreon.com slash Media. You can also find us online at facebook.com slash Media and Group at gmail.com. Our theme song is Behind Closed Doors by Otis McDonald. Otis McDonald